You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. The, the challenge that companies have is that they've had their privacy and, and cybersecurity compliance programs but the emergence of all these laws, it's outpacing their compliance program. So they're finding themselves in a very fast-moving environment. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hey, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben has the story of a federal judge blocking an Arkansas law limiting minors' access to social media. I've got the story of a court-ordered blocking of websites at the DNS level. And later in the show, my conversation with Cynthia Motley and Sean Buckley of Dykema. We're discussing the evolving legal challenges and compliance issued associated with some of the common data collection practices. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, uh, we've got some good stuff to talk about this week. Why don't you kick things off for us here? So my story comes from the PBS NewsHour. This Mm. is my PBS (laughs) NewsHour voice. Okay. Uh, And it's about a judge blocking a new Arkansas law requiring parental approval for minors to create social media accounts. Hmm. So this law, uh, which was passed earlier this year, was set to go into effect September 1st. And the federal judge issued a preliminary injunction against the law right before it went into effect on Hmm. August 31st. Okay. So the way the law was supposed to work is that social media companies, and there was a lot of confusion about what counted as a social media company, it had to have more than $100 million in annual revenue, and its primary purpose had to be various social media functions. So like interacting with peers and posting news articles. It's all defined in the statute, but I think it's defined in kind of a sloppy, inconsistent way, and that's Hmm. one of the reasons that the state of Arkansas... Um, is going to have trouble here uh, prevailing in this case. Hmm. Companies like X, Meta, I know I'm using the new names of these companies (laughs) just to annoy you personally. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh, And the other usual suspects uh, have these new requirements to verify the age for any new users that sign up within the state of Arkansas. Okay. Every user, whether they are a minor or not, is going to have to, instead of just doing what we normally do, which is check the box that says, I'm at least 13 years of age, I'm at least 18 years of age, 
would have to submit some type of verification, whether that's a driver's license, some form of government-issued uh, ID. Uh, so this is going to be pretty difficult to enforce uh, for a number of reasons. They would send that to some sort of third-party entity that would review whether this was a proper form of identification. Hmm. Weirdly, this law doesn't apply to Snapchat. <laughs> and the uh, judge in this case asked the litigant for the state of Arkansas why it does not apply to Snapchat, and he couldn't really give a good answer. That does seem odd. <laughs> it's very odd. And I'll, I'll talk about why that's relevant in a legal sense okay. in just a moment. Okay. I think that gets to the legal problem with this law is that it's it's really void for vagueness. Huh. I'll also note this is not the first law of this type across the country. There are other laws that have popped up. Utah has one of them. Texas is experimenting with something that sets up some type of uh, age verification requirement. Mm-hmm. Most of these sites require you to be at least 13 years of age, but in Arkansas, this would apply to minors. So anybody under 18 would have to get express parental consent in order to be allowed to use that platform. Hmm. So this is an inhibition on free speech, uh, both for minors, because minors, though they don't have full First Amendment rights in all cases, certainly have some level of First Amendment rights, and you would be blocking them from engaging in important national conversations. And then there is also the free speech effect that this would have on adults. People who don't have government issue ID or who want to remain anonymous Mm. would now be forced to submit their ID. Uh, That might cut against their anonymity, uh, and that might stifle their ability to participate in free speech activity. If you are suppressing free speech under our case law, If it is a content-neutral restriction on free speech, meaning you're not trying to punish the speaker for specifically what that speaker is saying, then the government has to have a pretty darn good reason uh, for that law to go into effect. Mm. That's opposed to what we call strict scrutiny, where if it is a content-based restriction, the government has to have a darn good reason, (laughs) more than pretty darn good reason. The legal language uh, for strict scrutiny is... A compelling state interest, and for what we call intermediate scrutiny, it is an important governmental interest. <laughs> so the judge here basically says, I don't need to decide which level of scrutiny applies here. We know that protecting kids from the harms of social media, and there are various studies that are cited as part of the legislative record of this Arkansas law, we know that that is an important governmental interest. Mm. The question is whether the means of achieving that interest are properly tailored to fit the ends of that interest. And when you have a law that's this vague and it makes it difficult for people to know how and whether they can comply with the law, that's when you run into constitutional problems. So the fact that there's no way for the court to determine determine whether this is the least restrictive means of achieving the objective of protecting kids from social media That's, I think, why this law was at least preliminarily struck down. Hmm. Uh, And the reason for that is the definition of social media, as I mentioned, is vague enough that it's very unclear which of uh, the actual social media networks this applies to. For example, this would not apply to YouTube because they are primarily a video service. If you ask me, uh, (laughs) have they never read the comments? (laughs) I I was just about to say that. Uh, I mean, that seems incredibly silly to me because if you're talking about the smut that is poisoning teenagers' minds in this country, I think it's just as much YouTube as it is Facebook or Uh Meta. Uh Uh, But 
the way they wrote the statute, it has this sort of vague test of is the primary function of the website social networking? Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that that is a meaningful distinction. It's hard to discern whether that would be the least restrictive means of effectuating the policy goal when you put it like that, when the term is so vague that you don't know whether it applies to Snapchat, when you know that it doesn't apply to Google or YouTube, which to me, if you are legitimately interested in protecting kids from the worst stuff on the internet, I think that YouTube would absolutely be at the top of the list. Hmm. And then there are the uh, rights of the social media companies themselves. So social media companies that violate this statute would have faced a $2,500 fine for each violation The law also would have prohibited uh, social media companies and third-party vendors from retaining users' identifying information after they had been granted access to the social media site. And so this puts at least some cost burden on the social media sites. And I think at least incidentally or a little bit threatens the free speech rights of the uh, services themselves. So ultimately, because uh, this is a law that is threatening free speech and the state has not shown that it is using the least restrictive means to effectuate its policy goal by having this kind of vague, poorly defined piece of legislation, I think it's absolutely appropriate that this federal judge put the brakes on it. I think Arkansas is going to have to revise the law, make it more clear what actually counts as a social media site. You have to refine the definition beyond this sort of primary purpose test. Hmm. I I think until they do that, this law is going to be, as we say in the constitutional law world, void for vagueness. Help me understand this, uh, would you say, least restrictive? Right. Help me understand that because initially that sounds to me like trying to prove a negative. Yeah, I mean, it is one of those very legalistic terms. It means that uh, this is the the way of achieving that goal that puts the least burden on people's free speech rights. And I think what the court is saying, and frankly, what the litigants are saying, the litigants are part of a trade organization called Net Choice uh-huh. that includes all of the major uh, major companies, TikTok, Facebook, X, et cetera. What they would say is there are ways to effectuate these policy goals that would have much more of an incidental, smaller burden on people's free speech rights. Exactly what those uh, methods would be, those least restrictive methods would be, I don't think the litigants nor the judge have the obligation to describe those. I think they're just saying here, this law is too overbroad. If you're going to restrict people's free speech rights, even if you have a compelling reason to do so, you need to find a way that both the companies and the consumers know exactly what they need to do to comply with the law. And the way the law is drafted, at least the thinking here is that consumers and the companies, there's going to be a lot of confusion as to to whom the law applies, to which companies the law uh, applies, et cetera. I know you and I, we, you know, we often um, joke about the, the breathless summoning of the, the need to protect the children. Right? Somebody please think of the children. Right, yeah. and and it's... Because it's quite often used as an excuse to to accomplish other things. Do we feel as though the legislators in this Arkansas case are coming at this in good faith, that their their intention actually is to protect minors from some of the ills of social media? I don't want to cast any dispersions on whether they're doing this in good faith. Yeah. You know, that's that's not my place. I think 
there is legitimate concern about the effect of social media on kids. Right. Uh, the U.S. Surgeon General just came out with a report talking about the negative effects. There have been a sufficient number of studies that show um, some of the effects on mental health, for example. So this is a problem that really does exist. I think the issue is it's really over-encompassing if you are confronted with this problem to first go to a full age restriction on the platform. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the problem of smut on social media doesn't necessarily have to do with the platforms themselves or the daily use of those platforms for finding information on video games or connecting with friends. It's about the negative content that people find on those platforms. So I think a better way to go about this would be to at least protect minors from this type of harmful content. And the companies have found through algorithms Basically, they've done a decent job of protecting minors from some of the worst content. Now, it's not it's certainly not a foolproof method. Sometimes something innocuous seeming like a British kid playing video games and getting, you know, millions of views on YouTube kids might actually uh, be the type of content we don't want our kids to see because maybe they'll use language that's threatening to people's gender identity or sexual orientation. Mm. Uh, so it's not always easy to tag which content is uh, the type of content we need to uh, restrict. But I just think you can agree that they have good faith, they've identified a real societal problem, but that good faith belief doesn't necessarily justify this sort of gating effect or gating strategy where you're blocking off an entire service to minors and potentially to adults if adults cannot fulfill those identification requirements. That's just, um, you know, dropping an anvil on a tiny little ant. Mm. Uh, although maybe that metaphor is a little too extreme, but I think you, <laughs> I think you get what I'm saying. To what degree, if at all, does this relate to some of the efforts we've seen states make to restrict access to pornographic websites? You know, the, the porn hub of the world's to keep minors off of those platforms, which I think is certainly non-controversial yeah. uh, in theory, but but they've, they've, the states have been unsuccessful at that as well for similar yeah. reasons. So adult pornography is protected First Amendment speech. Right. Um, however smutty it is, it is protected under our First Amendment. Now, there are things that are not protected under the First Amendment. One of them is child pornography. Ben, you keep using that word smutty. It's very judgmental of you. It is like. very judgmental. Uh, <laughs> judgmental. I really should use something else. How about... It's a loaded word. Icky? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> something like that. Something with a Y at the right. end. Right. One man's smut is another man's treasure. Right? Yeah, that does sound like something a Supreme Court justice would say, right? Right, right. Uh, so that, those types of websites do have some level of First Amendment protection. Uh-huh. I think when we're talking about like categories of First Amendment protected speech, pornography, while it is protected, would kind of be at the lower end of the spectrum. I think especially when we're discussing minors— we do want to protect minors from the worst pornographic, indecent websites. I think that's a legitimate societal interest, right. even within the confines of the First Amendment. Yeah. But there are other things uh, that social media websites or social media services have, present, that certainly falls under kind of greater First Amendment protection or presents a greater First Amendment concern, even for minors. If you're shutting off political conversations or preventing people from uh, being able to connect with their neighbors and their peers, mm -hmm. that is an inhibition on First Amendment activity, even for minors. 
So things that you might be able to reasonably prevent from a First Amendment perspective, like granting minors access to pornography, you know, I think you don't have that same type of justification. We're talking about a blanket ban on all social media services. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine, too, that there's a compelling case to be made uh, for teenagers who may be seeking out answers or help with a lot of the problems that teenagers face and may not want their parents to know that they're looking for that sort of stuff. Right. You think of uh, people with sexual orientation, gender identity questions, whose parents might not be approving. Right. Um, Things like suicide and and self-harm. I think it is in a societal interest to have resources, just just my opinion, available to minors of a certain age Mm -hmm. uh, without requiring the consent of their parents. Now, that's a live public policy dispute. I think there's a good faith disagreement on that. Right. But even so, uh, coming up with this blanket ban uh, where you're just putting up a giant gate in front of all social media services, many of which might not only be useful to children, but might be uh, First Amendment protected information is just too big of a, too large of an action, too vast of an action to fulfill Arkansas's goal of protecting children. And if Arkansas really wanted to protect children, they'd have a better targeted law that actually attacked all forms of social media um, that were harmful to children, including things like YouTube and Google. They would make the law more narrowly tailored to the most objectionable content on all of those websites. And the fact that they were not able to do that, I think, is why uh, this law ended up failing in court. So has this judge given the Arkansas legislators a a bit of a roadmap for how to come at this a a second time? Yeah. uh, So they're going to take another bite at the apple. Um, I think uh, the legislature could, first of all, appeal this preliminary injunction up to the Court of Appeals. Uh, Federal Court of Appeals, they very well might succeed there. The Federal Court of Appeals might vacate that injunction and put the law back into place. Uh, If that doesn't succeed, I think there is a roadmap here for Arkansas uh, to really put in the the work that they should have put in the first place to make this law as narrowly tailored as possible. I think lawmakers have to know that any in- inhibition on free speech is going to earn you the watchful eye of the judicial branch. So the more carefully uh, you draft these laws, the more well-documented your decisions are, the better you're going to do in court. And I think Arkansas has learned that lesson the hard way. All right. Well, it- be an interesting one to keep an eye on to see how many how many times do do Arkansas legislators have to go back to the well here, uh, and will they ultimately be successful in accomplishing what they're setting out to do here, or, or is it is it not possible? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, so far it seems very difficult for me to achieve this balance of a constitutionally acceptable version of this type of restriction, but. Mm-hmm. I think it's certainly within the realm of possibility, and some state, if it's not Arkansas, is going to try and pull it off. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. My story this week comes from a website called IS Preview, which is, I think is a little bit of a pun off of ISP. Uh, I see what they did there. Yes, exactly. It's an organization out of the U.K., Uh, it's an article written by Mark Jackson, and it's titled Quad Nine Founders on the dangers of global DNS blocks by rights holders. So, Ben, uh, are you at all familiar with a service called Quad9? I was not until I read this article. Okay. So Quad9 is a domain name service provider. And uh, just real quick, your DNS providers, they're the ones who convert the 
plain, I'm going to say plain English and be provincial here, but the, the plain English version of a website name, for example, Google, and the DNS provider takes that word that you put in there, say google.com, and converts it to an IP address. Right. And, and that's how you go and find the website. So uh, most folks, when they set up their uh, internet service at home, they'll use whatever the domain name server is that comes automatically with their server. And your ISP, your internet service provider, typically provides that. So well, they always provide that service. And most people just go with whatever they're provided with, and that works out fine. However, there are some third-party DNS providers. Quad9 is one of them. They're called Quad9 because their uh, DNS name server is 9.9.9.9. Very clever. Quad yeah, nine, four yes. nines. Yeah. Um, but, you know, lots of people go with other ones. Uh, Google has a public DNS server. Cloudflare has one. Part of the rationale for doing that is some of these third-party ones might be faster um, they may be automatically blocking uh, sites that are known to be malicious or providing malware. So lots of different reasons you could do that. What has happened here is that uh, the folks who are running Quad9 were hit with a lawsuit from Sony who wanted Quad9 to stop resolving domain names of sites that were providing pirated music pirated content. So let's say music, movies, that sort of stuff. Right. So the type of stuff I could have gotten on LimeWire in the mid-2000s. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. The golden age of content pro- oh, I miss uh, piracy. It. If that type of thing had been done <laughs> legally. Right, right. Uh, so Quad9 uh, went up against Sony in this lawsuit, and they lost. Quad9 lost. Uh, and so uh, Sony has... Uh, successfully had this takedown order with Quad9. Um, the, the judges agreed that Sony had an interest in protecting their rights to music and other content that uh, they owned. Uh, Quad9 is appealing the uh, decision here. But what I want to talk about is the, the broader issue here. Uh, this particular article is kind of a Q&A with some of the folks who run Quad9 with some of the issues of doing this. Uh, and they're making the case that uh, perhaps the, the DNS level of the Internet is not where we want to be blocking things, that it is a type of censorship, uh, that it, it is an undue burden on an organization like Quad9, who happens to be uh, an organization that runs on grants uh, and sponsorship from other organizations who find the service that they're doing to be a good one. Um, many other organizations provide DNS service either as part of another service that they provide, like it being an ISP, or if you're someone like Google who provides just about everything, you know, why right. not be a DNS server as well? So Quad9 is making the point that this is a burden on them. It provides extra expense. It can degrade the quality of their service. But they also make the case that they really shouldn't be the people doing this kind of censorship. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, Ben. So help me with this, Dave. Can we think about sort of the perfect metaphor here in the non-digital world? Mm. So would this be like blocking a bus that takes you on a road to a particular location because you're prohibited from attending that location? That's interesting. Yeah, I'm just trying to help me slash our listeners to conceptualize this problem. mm -hmm. Because it seems to me that 
you might have some intellectual property interest here, but as you said, this isn't the method to attack that intellectual property interest. This is censorship. Uh, If somebody is trying to use your creative works to make money under our understanding of copyright law, that's one thing. But this is about access to it, correct? Well, let's go back to the to the thing we always love to test these things on, which is pornography. Yep. So let's say you got your friendly neighborhood sex shop. Right. Right? They're selling all the things that sex shops sell, and they're doing good business. And as you say, I decide uh, as an adult of legal age that I want to go and shop in this establishment. And so I get on the bus and I say, take me to the establishment. Or maybe I get in an Uber or a cab. I say, take me to the establishment. And they say, and they say, what's the address? Where is it? And I give them the address and they go, oh, we absolutely cannot take you there. Yeah. So I think that's a, it's a, it's a legit analogy that the blocking of that site, the blocking of that shop should take place at the entrance to the shop. In other words, if they don't want to allow anyone who's under 18 to come in, or they don't want to allow anyone in who's been a problem in the past or whatever, you know, they can do that at the front door. But it shouldn't be up to the transportation providers to do that blocking. I think that's exactly what troubles me about this. Now, stepping back a second, I think people will be skeptical of this because, of course, Quad 9 wouldn't like this because this cuts against their service and their revenue and their entire business model. I get that. Right. Um, But I think the concern here is that you're doing the censorship at the routing level Mm -hmm. uh, and you can understand a slippery slope where maybe all of the major internet service providers collude together and start blocking access to certain domains And I know we talked a lot about the First Amendment in our first segment here, but Mm -hmm. that could have a chilling effect on uh, people's First Amendment rights if they know that no matter what they say or what they do, nobody is going to be able to have access to their content. Right. Uh, And I just think that's a little bit extreme. I think our legal system is generally pretty good at adjudicating intellectual property disputes, and I just don't think we need this type of tool prescribed by the courts, I think it frankly reflects a misunderstanding on the part of our court system as to exactly what's going on here. Uh, I think if they understand, if they understood it properly as this is just a routing method and not any sort of endorsement of the content, then perhaps this case would have come out differently. And I think it's possible that they just really didn't fully understand what was happening here. Yeah, and and just to to be clear here, and uh, shame on me for not saying this earlier, but this did take place in Germany. Quad9 is a Swiss company that operates in Germany, so uh, I am not familiar with all the exact rules and so on and so forth when it comes to having these things happen in Germany and international law and all those sorts of things. So that is an element that's at play here. Having once watched a Bundesliga uh, German soccer match, I consider myself an expert on there you go. <laughs> uh, German constitutional law. No, I know they have an equivalent uh, First Amendment right. It's frankly not as strong as ours. There are certain categories of speech that are not protected in Germany. Right. I think we can guess what some of those are based <laughs> yeah, on based historical on factors. German history, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, I think the, still, the same spirit still certainly applies. Uh, yeah. Right? And, and as you a, say, some of the other ISPs and, and or I should ra- rather, uh, the DNS providers are concerned that Sony was using this as a test case 
right? And coming at Quad9, who compared to the Googles of the world— It's an easy target, yeah. They're underfunded, right? They don't have the, the legal team that someone like Google would have to fight something like this. So the, the concern is that if Sony can get rulings against Quad9, then they start going after the bigger providers, and a, a, a rights holder like Sony finds this to be an effective hammer— uh, against the problem of people sharing their copyrighted content. Yeah, my guess is they tested this uh, in Germany. Then you can test it in kind of the broader European Union and in mm. our legal system. Uh, and our legal systems, while they are different in a lot of ways, I think some of the same principles still apply. So I think it's probably a smart move on the part of Sony to use this as a test case. Uh, and now that they've succeeded here, I think the cat's out of the bag and... Uh, we could see them tried in, in other jurisdictions. It is interesting to go back to our analogy because this is like, you know, Sony, rather than suing the the porn shop we were talking about, uh, suing the bus service. Or the and, Uber, yeah. And being successful and saying that you can't, you can't take people to this location uh, rather than going after the illegality of the operation of the location itself. Seems to me like Sony should just shut down... Or, or go after the website. And I understand harder to go after a secretive, shadowy website that will go from one bulletproof host to another when you can go after the public-facing organization like Quad9. Right. So there's a practical consideration here. Yeah. I mean, I also think you have, and they mentioned this in the article, there are a lot of good reasons why somebody would use a third-party DNS provider. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now if this lawsuit is, uh, becomes widely accepted, whether it's in Germany or elsewhere, it would probably end up being too much of a threat to the business model of these third-party DNS providers that they might go out of business. And without mm -hmm. any of these providers, you might not be able to get the benefits like, um, you know, additional malware filters or helping users avoid DNS-related bugs. So right. I think that's certainly a, a policy consideration as well. I also wonder how ultimately effective this is because a, a DNS provider is providing the translation of a website name to an IP address. Well, if the DNS provider doesn't provide that translation, that IP address is still out there. It still exists. Yeah, it's right. Like, so if in your I'm, metaphor, the the sex shop still exists. It's right. still there. There are other ways to get to it. Right. And in the community of folks who enjoy shopping at those places, word's going to get around, <laughs> right? Where, right. Where, where the location is. And I imagine the same thing here. If you're someone who's into pirating audio or video or whatever it is, you're going to be on some forum somewhere and they'll just share the IP address. Exactly. That's it. chan or whatever. Yeah. 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 So I don't, I, I mean, that's certainly valid. I don't know how this is going to be possible to fully enforce. Right. It right. just seems like an ill-considered judicial decision to me, but I guess that's what this, this court has done here. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Uh, uh, Quad9 has not given up the fight and uh, it seems as though they've rallied support from some of the other providers here. So... Hopefully, uh, we'll see how it plays out. All right, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. And, of course, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's caveat at n2k.com.
And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Cynthia Motley and Sean Buckley. They're from a company called Dykema. And we were discussing some of the legal challenges uh, when it comes to compliance issues associated with some of the common data collection practices that are out there, things like ad technology, you know, the, the things that we're all dealing with day to day. So here's my conversation with Cynthia Motley and Sean Buckley. So the, the legal landscape in this area is particularly, it's an emergent area of law, and we are getting a tremendous amount of aggressive regulatory landscape that continues to increase monthly, daily. And it's all in the advent of, you know, advancements in technology, companies' use of that data. So we have uh, several state laws already in the books, California being the, the forefront of, of this, and as well as some state emerging laws also that are following uh, the same trend. So the, the, the challenge that companies have, Dave, is that, you know, they, they've had their privacy and, and cybersecurity compliance programs, but the emergence of all these laws, it's outpacing their compliance programs. So they're finding themselves in a very fast-moving environment. That's where we find ourselves. And that's a lot of what you end up seeing in the news, uh, not just with, you know, data breaches, which involve obviously the protection of data, but also, you know, privacy compliance requirements. And Sean, where does this put us on sort of both sides of the equation? I mean, you've got the people out there who are trying to do advertising and online commerce, and then the consumers as well. I mean, is it fair to say there's a bit of a tension between those parties right now? Absolutely, right? So we, you know, uh, uh, as lawyers, you know, sit on, on both sides of that table um, sometimes on, on right, the media company, maybe the advertiser, and, and occasionally on the consumer front, Uh you know, joke with some of our clients that, you know, with respect to kind of this tracking technology regulation is here in the U.S., it was kind of the wild, wild west, you know, five years ago, uh, where unless you were kind of doing business in Europe um, under GDPR, you know, you could do quite a quite a few things and there, there wasn't a lot of guardrails in it. And you fast forward to today and it's an entirely different landscape where you have consumers who are increasingly aware of their privacy rights uh, and, you know, you have you know, states and uh, uh, the government, uh, you know, the federal government, you know, passing laws and, you know, uh, uh, enforcing existing laws on the book, right? So the, the Federal Trade Commission, you know, with the health breach notification law coming out against uh, GoodRx, and that they had never actively pursued previously, uh, but they, it's kind of a wake-up call to quite a few uh, people when that, that came across along with the California Sephora action. It was the a uh, shot across the bow. It's like, wake up. Uh, you know, they're, they're not playing around. Uh, they're going to come after you guys uh, for, you know, failing to disclose, failing to get the appropriate consents, whatever it might be. And how are the ad tech companies responding here? 
you know, some industry consortiums, right, that the IAB, the NAI, um, uh, that are, are working together to find a solution similar to what they did in Europe when GDPR passed. Passing consent strings is a very technical process, and it kind of requires all the players to work together to be able to read and, and to pass those signals from kind of an advertiser or publisher website. But they uh, are taking it seriously because, right, it's kind of, you know, driven from the highest, you know, the biggest players out there, right? The, the Googles, the, the Metas know that they have big targets on their back and know that they are going to be the test cases um, because, you know, unlikely that the regulator is going to go slap the hand of, you know, small town Main Street advertiser running a Facebook ad that, you know, Facebook allowed to happen. They're going to go directly after Meta to do that. So um, they, they are, uh, you know, you're seeing some interesting compliance methods, right? And, and a bunch of people, especially in July, pushed out new policies when CPRA came into effect to kind of restructure kind of some of what they were doing and reclassify themselves and make further disclosures of, of uh, hey, we're, we're processing your data in this manner. We're doing this under the law. Cynthia, when we see the regulatory regime here for privacy in the U.S., I mean, it strikes me that most of the action has happened on the state level. Um, first of all, I mean, do you agree with that assessment? And, and where do the feds stand when it comes to this? Well, um, there's definitely at the state level um, a lot of, uh, like as I mentioned before, emerging uh, data privacy laws uh, to address some of the things that Sean was was discussing. Right, the data privacy, you know, especially in the digital ad tech, has existed. Um, now it's just just more guardrails are being put around it with a very expansive definition of you know personal information to even include an IP address, cookies, pixels, things that you know you ordinarily wouldn't think as personal information. So to answer your question, uh, states are catching up with that, um, and there's also a, a, a strong push at the federal level with the um, Federal Privacy Act, but it's still subject, right, to partisan support. And uh, last year, there was a big push. It looks like there was some bipartisan support. Some things are still moving. So what what's happening is that Federal, you know, regulators like the FTC, um, SEC just came out with a cybersecurity rule. They're basically addressing it, you know, at that level uh, and, and going back to say, as, as Sean was saying, like, you know, even now you are required to not have deceptive business practices and um, and, and more of that enforcement. At the federal level, it's still, you know, subject to, you know, lobbying power as well as bipartisan support to get something, um, you know, passed uh, that would kind of unify a lot of these laws that are currently at the state level. And major lobbying efforts by these media companies to get a federal law that preempts these state laws, this, you know, patchwork growing and in increasing complexity. Uh, and right now they're kind of getting hung up on that exact preemption method, you know, that the California contingent, they don't want to give up, give up some of those rights that are, that are in there, um, even if it's a national level. Uh, so that, that's kind of where they're getting hung up. But uh, all of them, you know, w- would prefer a, a federal law that preempts these state laws. Yeah. And, and to that point, also to add to Sean's point, a big hang up is private cause of action. Right. Um, so there's mm. strong lobbying around that and preemption, still allowing the laws to because there's still tremendous lobbying power there as well, allowing the states to you know enforce their own state level data privacy protection laws. So. Those are some of the the, the biggest hangups that that we see with these at the federal level emerging emerging laws as well. 
You know, I think for a lot of years, um, there was kind of a sense of resignation among consumers when it came to having their information gathered and uh, being tracked online and, and all that sort of thing. It, do you sense that there's more of a groundswell now that um, folks are deciding that uh, this is worth fighting for? I, I think so. And and I think it, it's important to look at our, our friends across the pond, right? So uh, you could say that GDPR, you know, the federal EU law, started back in 2018, this, this massive wave. And, and quite frankly, it, it's become the model law around the world. Uh, a lot of the elements of the California CCPA come from, from GDPR. But I think there's a shift to answer your question, Dave, it, it, in that in the EU, data privacy has been considered a fundamental human right. And our U.S. laws have, you know, when you think of personal information, you think credit card information, social security numbers, financial driven law. And I think now with this emergence, we're, we're realizing more know that, you know, you can't, you know, take uh, uh, your, your advertising and then sell it and then pass it around to other entities without your knowledge or disclosure, maybe not necessarily consent yet, uh, you know, at all, at all levels but more awareness to say, I have something to say about my data. And I think that's the awakening that we're seeing. And, and it's, de- it's definitely reflecting in the, in the regulatory trends. And then again, at the federal level, with the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, trying to kind of be the, the omnibus, if you will, of all of, all of these, is, is certainly taking a lot of those GDPR elements as well and, and embedding them into U.S. law as well. Sean, where do you suppose we're headed here? I mean, as you look towards... The future. A- any predictions on where things might land? So, so it's going to be interesting because the internet as we know it is going to change, right? So we are used to having free websites, right? Go to our, get whatever you want. Um, but and the the fundamental exchange in that was right. You go to a publisher's website. That publisher sells ads, right? And so the ads are targeted towards you, right? If I don't have a cat, I'm not going to buy cat food. Cat food company doesn't want to, you know, pay for for advertising, you know, to be shown to me. Uh, and so, right, you, there's an exchange of information, right? They use my IP address. Cookie says, you know, they sync it with some of our big data providers and say, up, oh, you know, Sean doesn't have a cat. You know, let's not serve him cat food ads. But with these increasingly, um, uh, or I guess the, the increase in these regulations and and you know consent mechanisms. And the ability of consumers to essentially not provide their personal information or opt out um, for those ads, right? Those ads are less valuable. And that advertiser has to find a way to cover the difference um, in order to stay profitable, right? That publisher does. Uh, And so if they're not going to get your IP address when you go to their website, well, they, they need to get it somewhere. And so you're actually seeing an increase in roadblocks of you have to sign in. Right, you have to create an account, and in that, right, instead of just providing a IP address, which is right a string of numbers, I'm now having to give my actual email address, my first name, last name, whatever it might be. So you're actually getting directly identifying information because that advertiser can then, or that publisher can then use it, you know, in you know the the the, the sale of ads uh, uh, to these demand side platforms. Uh, in them, so you're you're seeing kind of a change in that, and I think it's only going to increase of you know. Websites have to stay profitable, and if we're cutting off the flow of information, you know, there's, there's, they're going to get it somehow, or, and some of them are going to close, and business models are going to change. But it's going to be a lot harder to just go to a website 
you know, read your content. You're going to have to provide some information somehow. You know, I, I think like a lot of folks, uh, probably decades ago now, you know, I, I was on board with the notion of having targeted advertising. This, this made perfect sense to me. You know, why not have put, put ads in front of me that are for things that I've demonstrated an interest in? I think where people draw the line is sort of how it's become almost creepy uh, and the degree that we feel like they're overdoing it, you know, to tra- tra- tracing us around uh, our location data and things like that um, and our inability to dial it in. I-, I can't help thinking, you know, all those years before advertisers had these capabilities, companies were still in business. They made profit uh, by showing us ads on TV or on the radio. And it seems as though they've, they become used to this method of being able to to hyper track us, and I guess I question the notion that there's no turning back from that or, or dialing it down. Data is a uh, it's a drug almost, right? To marketing mm. teams, if you are going to spend a million dollars and you're going to run your ad on the Super Bowl, right? You know the demographics of what that is, right? Nielsen will have those, um, and that's pretty consistent. You know, if you're going to buy on local news, right, you, you might be kind of just shouting into a room and hope that, you know, a percentage of those people are going to buy your product. But you're really not going to be able to tell how effective that million dollar spend is and, and your return on investment. And so the data game, right, has allowed marketers to say, all right, if I spend $1,000 on Meta's platform, I'm going to be able to see which one of these came to our website, which one of these checked out, which one of these actually converted. And that is the the drug that your these, you know, marketing teams have been used to is saying, yeah, we used to be able to advertise on radio and, and TV. And you can still can, right? But especially with connected TV, right? There's still a lot of data there. Right. But but the the days of just saying, all right, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna hand a million dollars to my ad agency and, you know, hope my sales increase. You know, CMOs uh, at, at these major companies, right, have to justify their their jobs and their spend, and you know, to say, hey, our advertising is working, and you know, data has allowed that to happen in in ways that you know you couldn't do, you know, 15 years ago, uh, and so that, that that's it's a hard drug to give up. What do you think? In some ways, I just feel sorry for the compliance folks because you're confronted not only with a patchwork of federal laws, but also now all of these state laws are popping up that are issuing new restrictions. And it's making a lot of these uh, compliance officials and lawyers uh, unnecessarily rich. So (laughs) as a lawyer, I approve of it, but I also feel sorry for them because their job is just getting increasingly difficult. Yeah. And I wonder where where is the breaking point where... Uh, there is no choice but to have federal legislation happen because people are screaming so loudly that it is just so impractical to abide by all of these different state standards. I don't know when we're going to reach that tipping point. I would have thought we'd been there already, but clearly we're not. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, our thanks to Cynthia Motley and Sean Buckley from Dykema for joining us. We do appreciate them taking the time. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. This show is edited by Trey Hester. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.